Jones Coaching Group is a proud sponsor of Unshackled Leadership on Lantern for Black Women. Jones Coaching Group is where professional women become money management masters. Welcome to Unshackled Leadership, a lantern for Black women. This program is produced to help women of color in leadership move from their zone of excellence to their zone of genius by eliminating any false upper limits caused by race, gender, culture, or their own inner critic. This program is dedicated to the legacy of Harriet Tubman, who held a lantern in the dark for all of us. I'm your host, ICF Certified Executive Leadership Coach, Joya Jefferson-Nury. Welcome again to Unshackled Leadership, a lantern for Black women. I have been doing this podcast for a while now, and you all know me to be an executive leadership and public speaking coach. But not many of you know my journey to get here and why I spend so much time with the inner critic when I coach people on this podcast. So now today I want to do a big self-reveal and tell you about my journey because I want you to meet my coach. As you can imagine, I have spent my entire career looking for success. I was a class officer in high school. I worked for local network television. I married a Harvard man. But through it all, I was so insecure, I had very little self-love. All of the perfect hairdos, designer clothing, and the constant climb to the top was an effort to be somebody. I was a fake. I thought if I emulated the external world, I could be somewhat. I was an illusion of what I thought was important. I thought being the first black woman to be the technical director of the CBS Evening News and Face the Nation was an identity. I wore all the all of that as a badge of honor. But none of that made me happy or fulfilled. I traveled to foreign lands, hung out with famous people, and I was still filled with so much self-doubt that I would tremble at the thought of the next step. Now, this is pretty ironic since today I teach people how to conquer their inner critic. I make a living helping women of color like me identify when they're fake and building a toolkit to combat it. But I had no internal compass. I went there I lived my life for external approval to lead me. But in 1991, I met a husband and wife team who were doing something at the time was called rebirthing. It was a process of long consultations, conversations, and deep breathing to help you remove the barnacles caused by your inner critic from your soul. I ended every session with Ken Renee Kaiser in tears and emotional pain. You see, finding the childhood source of your inner critic, admitting your parents' innocent complicity, and acknowledging your low self-esteem was so painful and can be painful for everyone. I watched myself dig deeper and deeper into fake, and I define fake as living for an outside approval, the desire to be in with the in crowd, 
unaware that they are fake also. So today, I stand in a very different place. I stand in a place that honors me for my internal place of love. I love all of my external joys. Don't get me wrong. I still like clothing. I like the theater and I still like hanging out with famous people, but it's not my identity. I'm finally the woman I always wanted to be. I glide around with a lot of peace these days. I'm not bragging. I just want to let you know. And very little fear of this future. And that comes with age. Some of that does come with age. But it mainly involves working with Ken Kaiser for 32 years. I want you guys to meet my coach. Welcome to Unshackled Leadership, Ken Kaiser. Lovely to be here. Now, I have to tell you about my Ken. He refused to send me his bio. He refused to offer up his headshot. See, because he's not part of all of this brouhaha that we all get all wrapped up in. I'm actually surprised you said yes, that you would be here. Um, Several parts to that, really. But primarily, it's about serving you. And that is spirit-guided for the most part. All right. I've learned to say yes to spirit every time I hear the invitation. Okay. So there's something bigger than both of us that comes out of this partnership. That's a, Absolutely. that's a big part of the reason I'm here. Plus, I like you. You're, you're funny. You're, you're a nice person. I enjoy hanging out with you. <laughs> I feel the same way. 32 years later, yes, I feel the same way about you. I felt that way about you on day one. Now, let's start first by talking about my journey. And tell me what you saw when we met 32 years ago. And I want everybody to hear this because your coach is a good coach. You should learn, you should learn from this. And as people who want coaches should learn from this. So Ken, I gave a litany of how I thought I would present it back then, but what was your impression 32 years ago? Um, I met somebody who was looking for answers. Um, Primarily, I don't, I actually, I don't remember specifics. It doesn't matter when I'm presented with a question. I usually have a response to help people find answers to those questions. All right. What I'm hearing right now that would be really helpful for people is about what we're thinking about you, what a coach is thinking about you personally, not the issues you bring forward. Yeah, that takes a lot of courage. And it's typically embarrassing because the last thing we want to do is confess our failures to another person. As a coach, I have no judgment about that. If you're in front of me, I know you're looking for answers. And I faced that same moment in my own journey. There has to be a moment when you admit you can't do it on your own. And that there's no shame in that. The moment you do that, that's when answers will start to come. Not necessarily because of your own intelligence or whatever. But at the end of the day, does it really matter where the answers come from? We're looking for results. We're not looking to save face. Okay, so there's the moment of admitting it's time to get help might be the biggest obstacle to getting the relief people seek. And I want to assure people 
that there's no judgment from this side. We know what you've been through because we've been through it. So there were times in the years working with you that I would um, say to you, oh, this is hard. I can't do it. I don't think I want to change that. Um, And you would have this line. I'm sure I'm not going to get it right. But it was like, you're not in enough pain. You're not in enough pain. Talk to me about that. Talk right. to our audience about that. Well, again, back to my journey, what got me to surrender was the day I looked up at God and said, I don't know how, I don't know when, but this pain is going to stop. The pain is what brought me to the bargaining table. And 99.9% of the people, it's the same story. I mean, nobody goes to the shrink because they're feeling too good. So right. We only show up to get help when we're finally, when we finally admit that we're over our heads. Now, truthfully, not everybody does. There are people who will take themselves off the planet in their refusal to reach out for help. That's a choice. I mean, some people make, but it's always um, the individual person's upper limit of pain, their upper limit of willingness to experience pain is generally what gets people to reach out. And that's fine. It works. It'll make a difference. I bet you for the first decade that you and I worked together, I felt that the pain I was in was normal, that I was supposed to be conflicted. It was supposed to be hard. It was supposed to have big failures in it. I was supposed to be confused because isn't that what growing up is all about? Well, that's, I wouldn't call it normal, but I would call it usual. And that's generally straight out of childhood. I mean, that's, that's what our childhood experience was. We, we are raised by people who are not particularly enlightened, and they go through a lot of pain, and they think it's normal too. So they have no qualms. Like you said in your intro, um, you're the, something to the effect of the innocence of your parents and what they passed on to you. Right. Because they didn't know better. If they had known better, you would have gotten that. You got everything they had. Yeah. Realizing that was a huge pain for me because I come from that Ozzy and Harriet childhood where my parents loved each other from the time they met. They stayed together till death do they part. I lived in a nice house that had an apple tree in the backyard. And how could they possibly be part of this? And what you were able to point out is I ultimately was the adult and a lot of that, that piece because I, my parents, I just functioned better even at 12 and how the world goes. That was very painful for me to realize their complicity and me feeling way too responsible when I was a little kid. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, you're illustrating my point um, about how pain is typically the thing that wakes us up. That's what, when we start to realize somewhere in childhood, oh, these people really aren't perfect. When I was 11, I realized I really sucked at relationships and I needed to do something about it. And that's a big part of why I'm here today. I mean, it, it really started that young in my own life. And my parents had no clues. I mean, 
by 11 or 12, I think we've gotten everything they have in their effort to survive our existence. <laughs> that is so true. You know, they're Parents just, trying to survive their children. <laughs> right. So they've used up everything, all the tricks they had, and that wasn't enough. And that was a shock. You know, that's part of the betrayal of childhood is realizing, oh, they don't have all the answers. They're not gods. I can't trust these people. Where do I go now? And that's that's a question most people don't ever answer, really. I know in my childhood, I learned somewhere around 12. My parents were not rich. Even though I got everything I ever wanted for Christmas, I got all the clothes. You know, I was told I couldn't be part of the Mickey Mouse Club because we didn't live in California. You know, I never questioned why didn't we move to California. I just, I just assumed that. And then I think I became aware of the outside world. I think John Kennedy's assassination a couple of years earlier than that. I was like, wow, there's stuff happening in the world beyond my neighborhood. You know, where I, we, you know, we were that neighborhood where you could just run around and your neighbors knew each other. You know, we, just a typical neighborhood. Uh, well, not typical, but it was maybe stereotypical neighborhood of perfection. And when I realized we didn't have the things that people had on TV, I think that's what triggered it for me. I wanted the things that people had on TV. I couldn't figure out why my mother didn't wear a skirt and high heel shoes to clean the house like the women on TV. And why we didn't have linen tablecloths or cloth napkins at the table and why we ate dinner in the kitchen and not the dining room. But it started for me triggering in order to be worthy, I had to be like the people on TV. And that carried until I met you. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you have this piece you call, I call it inner critic. You call it the kids. Why do you call it the kids? Because there are discrete ages inside and they have a voice and it is possible to communicate with them. And they're sometimes a voice for every year makes themselves known. So it's not just a critic. There might be a single issue that a person is, a single challenge somebody is dealing with that involves three or four different ages and different kinds of emotional rug burn that have to be cleaned up, that have to be addressed before that issue will get resolved. Okay. So it's, um, it's very powerful technique. I really, I really do like it. it. It's, there are a lot of interesting parts to that process. Tell me about the process. It's something I think out of all the people you coach, I emulate you more than anybody else. But I want to tell the audience about the process of finding out your first kid, your second kid, the rug burns. Typically, the quickest way, let me preface it with this idea. In this model, the adult part of us is the part that's always okay. Grounded, centered, knows what to do in pretty much any situation, not everything. Not perfect but comfortable in your skin, okay? So the moment, and this to me is the tipping point, it's when we go into a bad mood. That is a distress call from at least one or more inner children. And what I do at that point, if I'm working with somebody and they're relating a situation that's been 
challenging to them or an issue. And some feeling starts to come up. My question is, okay, so what age is this? Picture in your mind sending an invitation from your heart, inviting that child to come be with you. We'd like to speak with her. Typically, the people I work with are sensitive enough, intuitive enough. Sometimes it takes some practice to to get on top of that, to, to actually see the child. But with some practice, it is possible that that age will come forward and we can start having a conversation with her or him. The value in this is that if we're talking about some traumatic event that happened in childhood, for the longest time, what I went through was having to get out the oil drill, drill down through how many hundreds of feet to get back to that memory to try to figure out what happened, what my response was. Well, we eliminate all of that craziness by being able to talk to a particular age child. This is an eyewitness. It's live and it's happening right now. They're still in it. They're still living the movie of whatever was going on at that moment in your life. So we get very, very clear feedback about what happened and how we felt about it and what we made up about ourselves as a result of the experience. Okay, that's the gold. That last thing, what we made up about ourselves, because there are plenty of people who go through all kinds of craziness and it's like water off their back. It really doesn't seem to have any residual effect. That's great. That shows a significant level of inner strength. What we're interested in are the ones that did stick. That's where the gold is, okay? And that's what, through the feedback we get from the child, that's what we begin to hear. What exactly did stick? What exactly did we make up yeah. about ourselves? Um, I, I, what I've always loved about working with you to find out what stuck with me going back to talk to that age, to that inner child, was we did it through something natural called breathing. We just did breathing. There was no hallucinogenics. There was no prescription. There was, you know, right. go, go do rosary beads. It had nothing. It just a circle of breath. The, the breathing that we did, and I still use it occasionally, really have not had to rely on it much lately. I guess people are growing up. <laughs> I don't know. But what it does is it, it starts to release stuckness. It starts opening people up. It'll open up your heart. And once you start to relax, um, then access to those feelings and thoughts from way back becomes a lot easier. When we're in fear, when we're shut down, when we're in judgment, all that stuff's locked away and it's very difficult to access it. I said earlier in the introduction that working with you um, brought in a lot of hysterical tears. And it was usually during the breathing. What causes that? And I, I have clients who we work together and we have tears, real tears during the session. So what causes that? 
in this recognition. Hysteria, is that what you said? Hysterical tears. I mean, just really boo-hoo, go to a funeral crying tears. Oh, 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 okay. Right. Typically, that's a result of long-standing blockage resistance. It's like when you put a pot of water on the heat, it builds pressure. So when tears come up like that, it's because they've been under pressure for a long time. The good news is if somebody feels safe enough, then they can let those tears come up. I mean, that's really a primary piece of what healing work is about is being able to create a safe enough environment for people to access stuff that they're very often in judgment about and don't want to hear it, don't want to know it. And, and the big one, sooner or later, we'll get to this idea, and maybe this is the moment to drop it in. The reason I think most people don't want to do inner healing work is because they don't want to feel the pain again. The problem is you can't heal if you don't go back through the pain because that act, that movement is what actually releases it. It's not released until we face it and stop fighting it, stop resisting the pain. That's what locks it in. Once we finally accept, yeah, whatever I went through at seven, that hurt. And I'm feeling it right now. It hurts. Begins to clear out of the body. Finally. Okay. No amount of trying to head trip it. Let me process it in my head. That's not where the magic is. The magic is feeling it in your body. And gradually over time, that pressure decreases and comes up less frequently and the particular challenge connected to that trauma stops intruding as much or as painfully Moving also. it off of your body, it's, that's so true because after a while working with you, we would go through the session, I would have the tears, and I swear I felt like little pieces of glass all over the floor. All over the floor, like I've right. been broken apart. And an audience, I'm not exaggerating. It felt like triangles of glass everywhere on the floor. And I then, re- at first it frightened me, but then you taught me you have to now put it back together. And at what form do you want to put it back together? So I, I learned how to pick up the pieces I wanted and leave the other ones down there for somebody else to learn from. Okay. I like that image. Um, to me, what comes up when you describe that picture is the idea that not everything our parents taught us was incorrect. So we can't wholesale reject what we learned as a kid. We have to go through each idea individually, mine the gold out of it, and let the rest of it go. And to me, that's I think that's part of what was going on for you in those moments is that you Mining. were... One, letting letting go of the idealism about them and starting to see them as more human, which is how you really extract your humanity and their humanity out of the illusion. Let's take a short break from my conversation with my coach of 30 years, Ken Kaiser, and allow me to introduce you to someone else who has had a significant impact on my life. I am thrilled to have Jones Coaching Group as one of our sponsors. Kendall Jones, the CEO, had a significant impact 
on my financial life. She taught me the practical steps to increase my coaching business sales, project my earnings, and create a strong savings system. Joan's coaching group has helped hundreds of women gain control of their finances by working with them one-on-one and creating personalized financial plans that stick and empower them to hit their financial goals. Those goals could be paying off debt, increasing their credit scores, building investment portfolios, and much, much more. To learn how to relieve your financial stress and live in financial ease, visit jonescoachinggroup.com and schedule a free consultation with Kendall Jones. You know, and as the years went by, as we were working together, it started moving into letting go of the delusion about being human by, 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 uh, I'll start here. I have this piece on my computer, the base of my computer stand that I learned from you. And it says, what would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? And in working with you, there is always spirit. There was always a voice bigger than yours, not to come out with my own ego. I cannot coach my clients from me. I have to coach it from something beyond me. And you and I started working. I know you probably don't remember the details of this. It's been so long. You and I started working when I got a chance to start looking at this world I wanted so much to be a star in. Like there was a bigger world. And, 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 so talk to us about that. What comes up as you're describing that is the idea that God is a source of love. And love is what heals. So part of what I'm doing when I'm working with people is teaching them how to love themselves. Well, I certainly have not perfected that. And I'm able to connect with the source of love And I get a lot of guidance in the specific way I phrase things to specific people because everybody hears it differently. Everybody, some people, you can just get in their eyes and say it. Some people, you have to sneak around behind them or they'll resist you. It just depends on the moment and the person. But it is about that connection to love because that's what we're all seeking. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've proven scientifically, finally, that the cause of all addiction, all addiction is emotional disconnection. That's it. Okay? I think spirit workers, health workers, people in the metaphysical arena were aware of that much sooner. But, of course, we don't come at it from a scientific perspective. So it wasn't as widely accepted in mainstream media, for instance. But to hear it finally confirmed like that, it's like, well, duh, of course. But it, it, it is that big a deal. I mean, this is what we're after, is limitless love. That's, that's the point. That's the goal, okay? And part of what childhood does is, is it teaches us that 
based on what these people raising us believe, there are limits. And we make that up. Totally. We totally make that up. There's no reason for, for there to be any limits. But that's the nature of human existence. Human existence is based on lack and limitation and competition. So to fit in with the, the crowd, we agree to stop being unlimited or risk rejection. Now, think about that for a minute. That's like, oh, that shit's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There's no way to win that game. You can't win. And the, the whole thing about accomplishment in the world, what you talked about as far as your own career path, is a really powerful illustration of how that whole thing lands in people's bodies. They think that it is about work and doing and accomplishment that leads to the thing we're looking for. And it is exactly not. Yeah. Okay. It's not a doing. It's not a doing. Listening to you there brought back one of the most poignant, there have been trillions of poignant conversations, but I came to you years and years ago about a proposal or something. I, I wanted a job, something, contract, and it was for me to decide all of the stipulation. It was like, what was it going to ask for and money? What was like, what did the job look like? And I came to you for guidance on how I could do that. Like, what should I ask them for? What should I look? And you said, what do you want? And I said, well, I, I, I want this. And Lexi says, well, ask him for that. And then I thought, oh, no, no, no. I can't ask for that much. I can't ask him for these situa- this kind of work environment. And you kept saying over and over again, what do you want? What do you want? And I kept resisting back because what I wanted was too big to ask. Nobody else had ever had that. And you kept saying over and over again, what do you want? What do you want? Not them, not them. And I did finally, against everything in my brain, ask them for what exactly I wanted. (laughs) I got all of it. I was making $100,000 or more, more than the person in the job before me. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow. literally okay. $100,000 more than the person in the job before me. And the person who came after me was never able to make it to $100,000, let alone have $100,000 more. I just thought it was just too much. It was too much. They're never going to do this. I'm going to hate Ken. I'm going to hate Ken. I need the money. I got tuition. My daughter has college tuition. I got to pay the tuition. And they gave me everything I asked for. And a year later, I got a cost of living raise. And it was like ridiculous. And I thought, it's like, just what do you want? What do you want? And I don't think most of us are brave enough to ask it because we're stuck in the limitation. Yeah. That's a really... uh incredibly common kind of situation. I mean, what you're touching in on really is is this whole thing about external approval or external validation. And that is childhood. Because at that point in our lives, somebody else does literally control every aspect of our life. So it's crucial. It's survival that we make sure they're happy. Yeah. Yeah. We might die. 
Well, the thing is, that fear, that basic fear, does not change with age for most people. That's what was behind it for you when I said, basically, ask for what you want. And you're like, I won't live through it. I mean, that was the bottom line. At least something truly bad will happen if I put that out. So what everybody does is they try to anticipate what the other person wants. So they don't exceed that. So they keep that person's approval. And that's a function of the breakdown that happens when we are betrayed by our parents as children. And we all eventually are. How do you play, how do you answer the question, and and we've talked about it over the years, about parents who have limitations based on their own experience and fear that you might die if you get too brave. Black parents, color immigrants, who raise their children in this mentality of, well, if you step out too far, the white people will kill you. Um. I want to be delicate here because there are a lot of sand traps in this one. Okay. The truth is, it's not about you as a kid. They're not worried about you. It doesn't even have anything to do with race. It's their own judgment of their performance if something happens to you. And how they would be disapproved of if something bad happened to you. That's their unresolved external validation. You mean they won't be free coming I mean, up in their if, face if, if your child dies for something, maybe whatever. The first emotion would be, "Oh my God, my child is dead." But that's not the bottom of it. Yes, people go through huge grief. I do not want to minimize that. But that's not all that's playing out here. There's also the the thing about you screwed up and what's going to happen to you now because you made a mistake, a huge mistake in the eyes of society. Are you going to lose your job, your partner? Mm -hmm. Approval. Who knows? I mean, the well, yeah. And from childhood, see, the imagination is limitless. The, The horror stories we make up are limitless. So that's part of what drives that. It's like there's no upper limit to how bad you might have you could yeah. imagine it might yeah. get. Yeah. Okay. We the, the horror stories are limitless. That's it goes back to what do you want? Like you said, you'll of course you can't survive it. Something horrible is gonna happen. You're never gonna get this job and you're not gonna get the next one. You know, you'll be on the street and then you'll be homeless and then you'll be killed on the street because you're homeless and eaten by rats. I mean, you can just keep going more and more awful with how you play this out. Or die, die, of, die of starvation right. That's right. or whatever. Well, let's, let's talk a minute about the middle ground here because the typically, I mean, one first response might be, well, stop caring what people think. That's not going to work. There's a middle ground. And you're going to, to notice, for instance, if somebody does disapprove of your choice, you will not lose your sensitivity to how they're feeling about it. But this is a boundary issue. 
when their opinion becomes more important than your own, you actually let their feelings in your own body. They violated a boundary. Well, this is the kind of thing that happens constantly as children. A lot of people as adults never learn how to set those boundaries. So they draw that line and they can say, all right, I get that's what it is for you. And that's just not what it is for me. And it's not a negotiation. I understand what you're saying, what you're feeling. I've head tripped it. And this is still my choice. And that's the one I'm going to proceed with. And that really takes some consideration, especially if the situation under discussion is something in which you're highly invested, emotionally and or financially invested. That's what makes it much harder to draw that line. Because ultimately, I mean, if you talk to the richest people on the planet, they're real clear. There's a lot of times they really don't care what the feedback is from their environment. They because it's don't not going care. to impact. Look at Elon their Musk. Well, but it didn't start there. They got there because it didn't impact how they felt about their choice. Okay. Elon Musk didn't get rich and then develop a thick skin. He's never been good with okay. people before he was rich. Okay. And he's in, he's brilliant and he, he doesn't give a shit how yeah. people feel. It's not going to stop him from expressing his ideas. That's what he does. So living a life without thinking, caring how people feel, what does that look like? It's not about not caring. Because your friends might sometimes light up about something you're discussing, doing, wanting to be, whatever, you're going to be aware of their pain. You're going to feel it, their discomfort. Still doesn't mean there's anything to do about it. If you're clear in your own body, if you're at peace with your choice, that's not your pain. Leave it alone. That's one of the, that idea is probably the one my teacher said more to me than anything else. Leave it alone, because I'd want to go out there and mess with it. So I'm good at that. I can really do that. But now I do it as a coach because I have permission, and we have a mutually agreed goal, and there are a lot of positive conditions around it. In the past, I didn't get agreement. There was no discussion. I just waited in and tried to take over. It was a controlling thing, Okay. Now it's like, I don't need that kind of control over another person. Or an I really don't. Right. 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 Uh, that, that stepping in and rescuing and being codependent and all these cute words that we have around it, it is, I learned from you and I share with clients that you got family members and they're doing this, that, and the other, and... Um, I have one client in particular, I remember having this conversation with her and I said, could your help be arrogant? Have you considered that you're being arrogant? And it practically knocked her off her chair. Literally her body moved like she was going to fall off her chair. (laughs) And then in another conversation later, I said, you know, you're not God in their lives. They got a God. Same one that you worship. They got a God. 
And she said, I hate you. Because <laughs> it, it rang true. And I was just mimicking you. It's like, you don't, you don't need to step in. Like you can hug, you can hold, you can listen. But you don't need to do anything. Well, there's, there's only one time it's acceptable if you're invited in. As a coach, the only time I have say in anybody else's life is when I'm asked mm-hmm. to give feedback. Otherwise, I mean, I walk around, I see, oh, I don't know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that really could use my feedback, but they're not asking me. So I've learned to keep my mouth shut. And if I'm going to open my mouth, I'm going to get paid. <laughs> That helps too. That helps too. That helps set the line. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That helps set the line. Because yeah. If if somebody asks me for my feedback and I give it for free, they're a whole lot more likely to place that much value on it. If they're paying me hundreds of dollars an hour, yeah. they listen. They do listen. And they work with the ideas. And it's a more satisfying relationship. I find that the people who I give unsolicited help to or advice to 100% of the time are so stuck in their pain body. They're not going to listen to a thing I say. They're not going to, they don't want a new concept. They don't want a new idea about it. They just needed to vent. And I happen to be standing there and I like, well, sometimes that's a really valuable service. Don't okay. underestimate that. Some people just want to speak it. They don't want feedback. They just want to feel that they're in a place safe enough to bitch about it mm-hmm. without getting beat up, mm-hmm. basically. Okay? If that's what's going on, then you've done your job, you know, and how wonderful. No effort on your part. Just stand there and be a store mannequin, you know. Let them do what they need to do. I told a story just earlier today about you are my kitchen cabinet, the place I come for advice and guidance around my own work. And the story I told was about a client of mine who upon our first or second meeting at Meds, we're looking for her inner child, her wounded child, her kid, her first level of kid. She was raped at age six and it wiped me out. I just cried. I, I couldn't manage the session anymore. And I pulled myself together and I said, I'm going to have to get help to help you. And we talked some more about other things and we moved on. But when the session was over, I called you crying, upset. What do I do? I think, Ken, you should coach her. I can't coach her. Her problems are too big. And you said, no, 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 it's not me. It's you. You have to stop seeing her as a victim. Lean into your curiosity and coach her. And like, no, no, I can't. (laughs) And you're like, she's not a victim. She's not a victim. So I want you to explain that answer. I, I did it. 15 months later, this woman is in a PhD program. She has just done it and she did the work. 
once I shifted my consciousness around her, like you said earlier, it's how your coach feels about you. It's your coach's opinion of you. So I want you to explain why she's not a victim. Your answer is brilliant, but why she's not a victim. There's so many different aspects of that. Um, two big ones come up. One is we're all seeking autonomy, power, power in our own lives. And the only way to gain power is to take responsibility. Okay? So something goes on in your life that you know you consciously did not ask for. There's only one way to resolve it to a point that it's no longer a frequent occurrence, which is to have the idea, okay, some part of me called this into my life. I need to speak with that aspect of my, my personality because it's not serving me. It's not helping me feel very self-loving. You can't change something, a situation, uh, a bully, if you give them the power over your life. The only way you can change something in your life is to admit that some part of you invited this in. Now let me go find out what that is. You may not know. It may be one of the most deeply buried secrets that you have. So you're saying that, you have. that a six-year-old could have called this in. Okay. That's not that difficult to understand. A six-year-old is part of a family culture. I guarantee if you investigate the family culture, there's a lot of sexual invasion in the family tree. Okay. One or both sides. Because kids only copy what their parents do. They don't go outside of those lines for the most part. Occasionally we rebel, but rebellion is probably part of that child's family culture too. We're still following pretty closely. Don't forget, this survival thing is incredibly compelling. It's terrifying to step outside the lines at six or eight years of age. At six, you're looking at this, you're feeling it, you may not see it. A lot of times there's nothing overt. There's nothing that anybody has seen, but it's this undercurrent of incestual feelings, emotional invasion. And the kid, as kids, we're incredibly intuitive. We pick up everything. If, if parents out there who are listening haven't figured out, your children are your emotional megaphone. They're speaking all your secrets to the world because that's where they live. Yeah. That's all they know. Okay, so at some point, a child is going to have some level of curiosity. What's this about? People are doing it. It must mean something. Let me find out. So, boom, the energy is there. Somebody walks into the room who happens to be, I'm going to use this phrase, vibrating on this level, listening on this channel looking for invitations for invasion. Mm -hmm. Something happens. Okay? It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Every relationship experience is a co-creation. Everybody brings something to the moment to have that experience, whatever that experience was. So as an adult, looking back at, the, at what happened at six, the first thing is probably going to have to happen for her 
is to talk to the six-year-old so that she so she can get to an emotional state of mind to be able to look at the event with some objectivity. If you're still caught up in the rage, the pain, the guilt, whatever, you'll yeah. never be able to work it through. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's exactly what happened. That's exactly how you guided me. And we've been now 15 months getting to a place where she can fully accept that her parents aren't gods. She's not a victim. Um, and that she's the creator of her life. And now I think she's closer to being limitless compared to where she was before. I mean, she just got back from Australia. Speaking of an event, right? Well, sexual abuse, sexual abuse is some of the most violent. One of the things I see happen frequently around sexual abuse is the way people scatter their personality all over the universe. I mean, it just... There are parts of them all over the place. So they're never all in one place at one time ever again. But if you're trying to be creative, for instance, you need to be able to pull you together to focus your energy in the act of creation. So it can be a real problem when you're trying to, to grow up. King Kaiser, you have been a jewel in my crown for 32 years and probably long before that. Uh, I mentioned your wife, Renee, earlier, but she has passed from the planet. And she was your partner. And um, I don't want to go any further without saying what a role, big role she played, because she actually was my coach at first. And I remember saying to her, with the, you know, the first couple of years of this 32 years, I was working with Renee, maybe the first three to four years of working. And I said to her, I said, I have to go work with Ken now because you're too easy on me. And I, I think at some point she didn't work with me. You did. <laughs> I couldn't. I said, I got to go work with Ken because Renee, you're too easy on me. She was kind and gentle. And she softly called me on my shit. And you just shouted my shit <laughs> all over the place. And it's like, okay, I need to be beaten up. I'm coming with Ken. And we've been together ever since. So I do honor you. I do honor the work you do. I talk about you all the time. Um, I refer to you in my coaching sessions. And like I said earlier, and I've said this to you, of all the people you have coached, I do believe, and I don't know everybody you have trained, because, oh, and also Ken worked with Ayanna Benzant in her Inner Visions um, Center. And, well, tell us about the work with Ayanna. For, before we go anywhere, tell us about the work with Ayanla. She originally came to me as a client. I introduced you. Yeah. Through you. You uh-huh. introduced her to me. She was looking for a breath worker, as I understand it. Um, she came over. We did a session. She had a hilarious comment to she you. Came, I waited about outside me. of the car while she's having this first session with you. And she came out. It's, she wasn't disheveled, but I felt her energy was disheveled. And she came out, I got out of the car because I felt like I should open the door to the car and let her in. And she said, where have you been hiding him all my life? <laughs> and I thought, all right, Ayala. <laughs> so we continued on a personal level mm-hmm. for several years, really, before she started the center. And then at some point she came up with that idea and invited us to participate. 
And we did. Uh, Renee and I took the rebirthing section and the relationship section for, wow, I don't know, 15 years until Renee passed. And then it's sort of, um, I guess it's fallow right now. I don't mm-hmm. think it's over, but we're just not now. doing anything yeah, at the but moment. 15 years is a long time. And the years right. before that, um, she, Yana Van Zandt, once again, it will, well, is um, a great inspiration in my life. I was her first publicist, and that's how we got together. Um, another person doing great work in the world. So, Ken, I want to thank you very much for joining me on this podcast, and I want to thank Spirit for saying yes. <laughs> and um, it's hard to express to people the the depth of my trust in you and the depth of our friendship. And so thank you for joining me on our podcast. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Unshackled Leadership, Unlanterned for Black Women. I hope you were inspired to make a change in your life. I want to acknowledge the outstanding work of my sound engineer, Chris Downing, of Dream Life Media Group, graphic designer, Dominica Eldridge of Unique Creatives, and Victoria Cook of Next Level Marketing. Our theme music is called Morning Thoughts. It is composed and performed by Hotham of HothamMusic.com, and we found it on SoundCloud. I'm Joya Jefferson-Nuri. I hope you will join me again. Thank you.